This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Something a bit different this week. Imagine that it's 2024. As America goes to the polls, democracy itself is on the brink. Who will take the White House and at what cost? I'm outside the Old Vic Theatre in London for the new play The 47th, which asks precisely those questions, offering a dramatic glimpse into the next presidential race. So what is it that draws artists and writers to American politics again and again, from the West Swing to House of Cards, Pennsylvania Avenue is a perennial setting. Why? What light can theatre shed on the 2024 campaign that news coverage can't? I'm Jonathan Friedland, Guardian columnist, and this is Politics Weekly America. In this election, we have a chance to change the course of history. I'm confident. Now more than ever, we will make America proud again. We choose truth. Totalitarianism. Over facts. I'm complicit. I gotta go do boom, boom, boom. The world is... It's the morning after the night I saw Mike Bartlett's hugely exciting and thought-provoking new play, The 47th, and here to talk about it. I'm delighted to say that Mike Bartlett joins me in the studio. Mike, it's very good to have you on Politics Weekly America. So let's just say something about the what the sort of setup is. It is 2024, as we've said, there is a race for the White House going on, the race to be the 47th President of the United States, Joe Biden, currently obviously the 46th. And there is a race on the Republican side to be the candidate, Donald Trump still sulking around, brooding around, wanting to come back in to politics. And then on the other side, you have this interesting moment where Joe Biden, an old and sort of faded Joe Biden, hands the baton instead to his deputy, Kamala Harris, for her to be the candidate. And those are the two, the backdrop, the context of the of the play is that it's a kind of rolling January the 6th. There is, there is every day is January the 6th in the play. There is trouble going on across the country. It's not just in Washington in all the different states there are crowds and we even have the figure of the sort of horned shaman figure who appeared in the well of the senate in on january the 6th you have somebody who looks like that on stage sort of symbolically with all these protesters you know those of us who are in the political commentary field got out of the prediction business after 2016 uh, partly because of what happened in america with donald trump's election but also britain and brexit and we just said right we're never going to do that again yeah, yeah. so i have to ask right from the start before we get into some of the specifics to what extent is this 
a prediction by you of where is this your best guess of where you think it's going it's a, it's a it's an imaginative prediction so i think what i'm trying to get at and what a theater piece can do is to try and get in the psychology and whether that's the psychology of people that vote for trump whether it's inside the psychology of trump or indeed the psychology of those on the left trying to win and stop it it's trying to genuinely get inside those ideas match them with a emotive sense of identity mix all that up as you can in the theater and then yeah push it into the future and go where does that leave us rather than it being a a sort of more journalistic look into the future because i think as an artist that's that's your role there are many opinion pieces about uh, a potential for a new civil war when i spoke to journalists about this they quite a few of them said well it, but it won't be guns and people on the street and all of that but as an artist i sort of went well we have seen guns and people on the street breaking into the capital that looked like a scene from another country or from a shakespeare play or and i think the role of the artist is to provocatively try and imagine the unimaginable before it happens you know it's one of the roles of the artist and so that's what i'm trying to do even if it seems unlikely or unimaginable i mean it's been very important to me that there's a line that Kamala says to trump which is she describes what he would do if he did get power again and that basically describes a scenario where he consolidates power, he gets a third term, he becomes like a dictator. He said, calls her a fantasist, and she says, no, everything I've said comes from your mouth. And for me, that was the rule on the play, is that although you might watch the play and go, this is extreme, all the things that Trump does in the play, every single one of them is an idea that Trump has said or said he wants or has has talked about his own family or talked about the dictators that he admires. And he has talked about the ending term limits and going yep. on and on and on and being president for life. Uh, all of those things, you've gone for the Margaret Atwood rule that she made sure there was nothing in The Handmaid's Tale that hadn't happened somewhere and you've you've done something similar. And I, I, I noticed that reference to everything's come from you. You were telling the audience that too yep. um, at that point. I mean, that question, and it's fascinating to me that you spoke to journalists about civil war because some really sober-minded people in america have asked that question the writer david french for example has talked about a possible secession yeah is it your view and i absolutely take your point about um, it's imaginative and it's not literal but that january the 6th isn't a one-off event in the recent past but is a harbinger of what's coming in the future yeah i think i think that's right and i think there are lots of sort of reasons for that but I wrote a previous play called King Charles III, which in a way was about the unfinished legacy of, of the English Civil War. And I think this is almost about the unfinished legacy of the American Civil War. It feels to me like as social media pulls us apart, as different ideas pull us apart, that the idea behind America that can pull all those completely different states together, all those completely different people together, does seem to be falling apart. And that vested interests in each state are losing any reason to be federal and, and far more looking for their own interests or in the states. You've got states trying to set up a state guard on one hand. You've got people calling for a Christian nation, which are fundamentally against the idea of the United States of America. We haven't seen things like this before or not, not for a, a good long time. So I suppose the play is sort of looking at those clues and saying, really, I suppose what I was trying to do in the play is to go, what is the answer to that if you believe in america and you believe that there's something of value to hold these states together and to try and keep this country together and this project together what's the answer to the people who are trying to pull it apart or or construct interests for one particular group against another i think more broadly it feels a time where we are 
being separated into different silos and um, being encouraged through social media to get more angry and to define our identity in quite a narrow way and then and then either defend it or attack it on other people. And all these things, there are lots of potentially good reasons for this politically, but I think overall there's a huge danger that things fall apart. And when things are falling apart, countries tend to look for strong men, leaders, who offer certainty, even though that certainty is completely false and is to do with their own desires and interests. And I don't feel that at the moment the left in America particularly, or indeed in this country, have got an answer to that. There's a speech in the play about Trump saying, how would I defeat myself? And, you know, one of the things he says is that when Hillary ran, nobody knew. He, you know, could say five things that Trump wanted and you couldn't say anything that Hillary wanted. I think it's from the very same exchange where he says, go on, what's your... What do you stand for, he says, to Kamala Harris? And she comes up with his answer that involves the words legislation and mechanism. And he comes right, he says, I'm bored already, after she said about five or six words. And I thought there you were making a point. We've actually talked about it on this podcast before, about political language and how the left, centre-left Democrats, just constantly get into this abstract, dry language where the right use much plainer vocabulary, much more colloquial, much more popular and tell stories, whereas the left come up with policies and abstract nouns and statistics. And I just thought in that little exchange, I felt that was a bit of you telling us this is one of your sort of hobby horses that you think the left get it, get it wrong on political language and the right are just a bit better at it. Yeah, and I, but I don't know what I think about that because I think the other thing the right do is they entertain. They know that to, to get clicks, to get attention, you've got to be funny, you've got to be provocative and they've really got nothing to lose. They don't, don't seem to, I'm trying to not be biased on this, but they don't seem to have any sort of moral or ethical bar below which they will and certainly for Trump it seems as he says he could shoot someone and he'd still be elected president so he's literally saying it's not about ethics and morals it's about effect and business and power and and for him entertainment by all accounts his um his team would just be waiting when he stood on the stump to see what he would announce because he would announce something simply because he felt he was losing the crowd for 30 seconds this notion of entertainment is not just gloss or showbiz on top of politics and power it's becoming the politics and power because the currency is our interest and our clicks and what we're fascinated by online and what we're drawn to. I'm not quite sure how we get out of this. And again, that's why I write plays, because I don't know the answers to these questions. But I think, um, you know, we have it in this country, but America is, it's that writ large and it strikes terror into me about what the consequences of that, when you apply that sort of populist thinking that has driven dictators and strongmen across history and then you you fuel it with social media phones and a deliberate dilution of truth and verifiable fact just on some of the specifics about Kamala Harris you depict her as this very wise strong moral figure of great moral integrity in the play you know with complications but broadly and yet, again, we've talked about it on this podcast. People are, on, are quite disappointed in Kamala Harris. They feel she hasn't been. I don't not not that she's fallen short in terms of moral standing, particularly, but just not not that present, not that great. You know, there are clips that are shared of her being kind of um, faltering and stuttering on some of the big questions about Ukraine and other things. Your Kamala Harris is a is a more admirable figure, perhaps, than the real one. Well, I I, I no, I, I I think she maybe becomes that in the play, or it's sort of thrust upon her. She talks there's a soliloquy about her being like an understudy that she has to sit in the dressing room and watch someone doing what she could do, and that the very nature of doing that has mean she's lost her nerve. 
that which is the end of that soliloquy um that i used to think i could was more than just a deputy or a prosecutor now i'm not so sure and i think there's the, that's trying to reflect the thing you're talking about which is that maybe through being in that role of vice president which i think a lot of people would say is a very thankless task and it's like name name the superhero vice president and it's quite hard to do that yeah. that you know how because the whole point of it is that you don't succeed more than the president so i think that's tough um but in a way as a dramatist she's an ideal person you, you know you wouldn't want the 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 person that the, the presidency is thrust upon to be completely ready and brilliant. You want it to be someone who has slightly lost their nerve and isn't sure how to step up to the situation. And I think that's so. She's a good protagonist for me to ask the question: How on earth do you defeat Trumpian populism? Because she hasn't got an answer, but she tries. You know, she tries going very hard line with him, like a prosecutor using the law. She considers doing things that are maybe not so lawful. But in the end, what she has left is, as we talked about earlier in the conversation, is her ideals, is what is America? And if at what point, do you, if you cross the line, do you not really have a, you don't have those ideals and you don't have that country left? So she's there to sort of unpack that. And I think, although I agree, she's she seemed to be a bit wanting even back in the debates that, you know, I think she didn't. She well, didn't do she as tried, well. As, she, she did try to run for it, president that's what I mean. in, yeah, in the yeah. Joe Biden year. And she did, I, don't, I think she pulled out the race before a single vote was cast. She yeah. didn't. She quit before even the New Hampshire primary um, because she didn't get much support. So people have admired her, but they weren't really ready to yeah. to vote for her. But you took that a step further, which I, I thought was interesting. You, you, you've made a whole, you know, a series of literary choices, dramatic choices, but they end up being political choices. So they're interesting. I should also say to people listening, the reason partly why I'm taking very seriously what Mike Bartlett predicts is because in King Charles III, with a, a slightly uncanny, I think you have the Prince Harry figure starts dating a mixed race uh, woman and eventually wants to leave the country, I think, with her. You wrote that before any of that had happened, before any of us had heard of Meghan Markle. And so, you know, there's a reason why people might listen quite closely to the uh, dramatic choices you make, because you've got a bit of a track record when it comes to uh, looking into the future. One of the things you suggest is that Kamala Harris's antagonist on the other side, yes, Donald Trump, but also one of his children. And you have a kind of nod to King Lear where he's going to decide who his heir is and of the three children it's Ivanka who emerges as a major figure in the play I would guess if we were talking to you know journalists in America right now they would say if there was a going to be a political heir to the Trump dynasty it would more likely be Don Jr who is more active on Twitter and all that kind of thing and seems to have that sort of taste for the populist jugular that his father has but you land with Ivanka I mean Almost putting aside the dramatic choice, because I can see why having a woman as an antagonist for Carmelo would be quite appealing. But politically, do you think of the three of them, she's actually the one who might be the strongest? I think there's two things. I think firstly, she was considered as a vice presidential candidate, apparently, uh, the first time round. That was a consideration. He did think that might be a good idea. So clearly, and I think he would love that. I think if he thought he could swing it. So there was you can that imagine just loving of, the bumper sticker saying Trump, 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 Trump. Exactly, it's ideal. It's and, <laughs> and and also I think the sort of feel of it. So partly it's who does he consider his heir to be, and also he's so savvy about winning that I I honestly felt if he looked at his children and went which three is is actually, could actually win this, you know if they ran or if they they were the running mate, I think he would think Ivanka straight away. And I I agree. I don't think Don Junior has a hope, but I think Ivanka could. I think she could Why? inherit. I think Don Jr. feels like a bit of a fool. He feels like a bit of a sort of playboy and and an idiot and not got his father's savvy. I think Ivanka has preserved a sort of 
gloss and a slightly an unknowability. There's a her, mystique there, isn't mystique, it? Mystique, like her mm. and Jared. And then there's these articles about them living a, trying to live a sort of quiet life in a Florida suburb. And it's a great depictions of them in a way that's the sort of gesture of the play is is not so much to go journalistically who looks like the most likely but what would trump who would trump want his heir to be and what would that heir look like and actually is there a form of trumpism that could be more dangerous in the future because it would be both take his base and then be more palatable to the center ground because she does even in the play but certainly in real life too smooths off those sort of rough edges she can seem softer she for example is not all in with the january the sixth style civil protests yes. in the play and violence and so you can imagine her being the kind of acceptable face of trumpism and apparently that's what she was doing in real life is texting him going you've got to call them off yeah um and and at various points you know i'd certainly i don't know whether those were leaks whether that's the story she wanted to get out that she was the sort of person the more civilized person holding her father back i don't know when he was in office but that's certainly the impression that that came out so whether that's true or whether that's what she's trying to construct I find all that fascinating. I yeah. think that's really... So she's... A, I find her really interesting. Just a couple of more sort of broader things in politics. You have this device on the stage. Quite often people bring out their phones and film each other and you have a live image of whatever they're seeing. And that happens enough times for me to feel you're saying something important there that we, we are to notice. And you mentioned earlier on our, in our conversation about phones... I mean, how much has the the phone and the uh, you know the handheld camera and the social media platforms where those videos are then posted? How much have they changed U.S. politics? What do you think has happened there? Is it a profound change, or are the sort of underpinnings of politics still the same as they were, where you have a kind of warring and ambitious dynasty as you did in Shakespeare's day? Because in a way, both elements are in your play. Yeah, I, I, well, I think they've changed. I mean, someone said we shouldn't call it a phone. To call it a phone is is yeah. is to reduce it. It's something far more that's like plugged into our brains, and it's affecting the way we think and the way we behave and our access to information. So I think it, it, if you think about the power of it, just on a personal basis, it's going to have a massive impact on politics. If it was a democratic thing, if it was like the initial dream of the internet where we could all um, get access to free information and and there was a genuine market of information, even if it was that, then I think maybe it would reflect the old school politics and a sort of democracy and ideas and whatever the best ideas will come to the top. But I don't feel like that's what's happening. I feel like it's become a place where big interests, whether that's social media companies or big political funders can use the platforms to affect what information goes to what people and can do it in an incredibly targeted way. People who listen to this will completely be aware of all this stuff. But like, you know, even like I always think of Darren Brown, how he would put subliminal messages in to make someone think something. And this is happening all the time. And we know that they can do that so that you what the articles you encounter, the facts you see completely sway you towards a way of thinking. So this idea of brainwashing is not a sort of fantasy. It's absolutely going on. And in that world, it feels like the possibility of, of being able to sway huge groups of people towards causes that they both feel incredibly emotional about. It, that's the other thing is that politics is not like it's, 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 it's becoming not just like a segment on a trivial pursuit. You know, you've got politics and you've got religion and you've got science or whatever. It's becoming everything. It's becoming who you are. And if, if you are not this, then you are nothing for a lot of people because it's emotive. It's my identity. It's everything that I believe in. And that being the case, it's expressed on your phone all the time. It's how you feel you've got a voice. It's where you get your information. It's how you think. It's how you argue. That's going to affect everything. And I do think the right has embraced it. And I think the left is still trying to play politics 
the like old way. The old way. And, 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 and for whatever reason, they are struggling to embrace the new technology, which is odd because you would think potentially, given the ideas of progress and conservatism, it would be the other way around, but it, it hasn't been. Yeah, and with younger people often, you know, predominantly on the progressive side of totally. politics, you would think so. And yet you, you're saying they're lagging behind. Talking of age, let's just close out with a couple of questions about specific protagonists. Joe Biden, is the real Joe Biden as frail and as weak as your play depicts? Uh, well, something happens to him in the play that makes him him more weak and frail. I think, I, but I think that I, I suppose what it reflects is that whether or not he was going to run a second term, everyone would be saying now he's definitely going to run a second term. I can't see it happening. I mean, all I'd say is if he does run for a second term, that says something about the Democrats that so they, they, haven't, are, got they else. haven't got anyone else. And I think that in itself is sends a, a, a pretty, pretty weak message, which I think is the, the interesting thing beyond his his current physical capacity about whether there's anything wrong with him i think in a way that's less the issue than what's going to happen the next time so all right on the other side you said your gut is that it's going to be trump i have to say that if i if there was a gun to my head and i had to say i would say the same thing you have that scene in the play where trump almost offers to say how some advice on how to take him on this is what i would do to beat me because he's you know he's so confident in a way that he understands the political game better than anyone Mm. else You've taken such a good hard look uh, at him, his rhetoric, his brain, his tactics. Having gone so deep into it, what's your answer to that challenge yourself? If you were, if the Democrats picked up the phone and said, okay, you're the Trump whisperer in a way, you understand this guy. Mm. How, what is the way to take him on in 2024? How do you hit his weak spot? I, I mean, I, I suspect, and this is, this is not easy, but I suspect you need to find the person in, in the presidential system you need an an equivalent to like a pres- like Blair, basically. You need someone who can be entertaining, is incredibly presentable, very bright, can make a case. You know, one of the things Blair was very good at is dissecting ludicrous answers on the other side and doing it in a way that was intelligible. But also he understood to tap into a sense of history and identity. I feel like that's... If, if the Democrats could find someone that was witty, that was entertaining but that was also truthful and meant what they said. I mean, this, this doesn't sound like it should be such a high bar, but I think it is. I can't see... Have you seen any Democrat? I, I mean, I, certainly when I looked, no, not not at all. I remember when John Kerry ran, I I literally switched on the television. I'd not seen him before. I switched on the television, looked at John Kerry and when he's going to lose. Within a Second. minute. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the problem with, with the Democrats. And why did you, in his case, why what, what did you see in a few seconds? His manner. Hmm. You know, it's like that thin slicing thing. You underestimate that at your peril that that people make a judgment within 30 seconds and it will stick you know in a way that's what i think the democrats try and need to find is someone who when you switch them on you want to keep the tv on you want to keep looking at them on your phone you're you're really interested in what they've got to say rather than just someone who's competent or the best of a bad field and trump is has that in in in, in spades right by the bucketful yeah. he there's something yeah. mesmerizing do the democrats need a donald trump I mean, unless you change the entire culture, you need someone who is a great presenter, someone who's great, who's fascinating, who's interesting, who's funny. It's not a culture that I particularly like that that's the fact of what we need. But I think unless you're going to change the entire culture, I think that is what you need. We always ask um, our guests on Politics Weekly America a what else question. But I thought I'd just put this to you because it just stopped me as being a line you could almost imagine from your play. Uh, Fiona Hill, the British-born advisor to past presidents who sat on the National Security Council and is a Russia 
expert uh, has been quoted in a new magazine uh, article in the New York Times talking about Trump's uh, mishandling of Russia and Ukraine policy when he was president. Donald Trump's reply when this was put to him to the New York Times was, she doesn't know the first thing she's talking about. If she didn't have the accent, she would be nothing. How Donald Trump is that? Yeah, well, that's... Yeah, and it's it's a woman again, isn't it? <laughs> I think as well, his attitude towards women is sort of despicable and uh, and awful. The sort of Saturday Night Live version of him is broad and as though he doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. His phrasing and the way he comes at subjects left field, him deliberately insulting people like that and like you've just described. It's incredibly sophisticated, the way he talks and the way he carries attention. It's instinctive, but also it's crafted. He spent a long time talking like this in public. In a way, part of the purpose of the play is to take comments like that and take the way he operates and frame it. There's a sort of Brechtian idea of referendum effect, which is that you take something that people see as just the li- a life and normal and you put it on stage, you put a frame around it, and then when you see it again in real life, you can analyse it in a different way and you can see the, the mechanics underneath it. And I think that's what I sort of hope to do with Donald Trump is to mean that when you see him again, you almost see the tactics that are going on there and that that somehow drains him of a bit of power. That would be great if I could do that. The play is the 47th. It is playing now at the Old Vic and the author is Mike Bartlett. Mike Bartlett, thanks so much for coming on Politics Weekly America. Great, thank you. And that is all from me for this week. As you heard, Mike Butler and I were talking a lot about distrust in politics. And that is a bit of a theme for both this week's Politics Weekly UK and for Thursday's edition of the Today in Focus podcast, where Noshin Iqbal and I spoke about the latest twist in the so-called Partygate scandal. So do have a listen to both of those. My thanks again to Mike Bartlett for joining me in the studio. The 47th is at the Old Vic Theatre in London until the 28th of May. This week's producer was Ian Chambers, the executive producer, Nicole Jackson. I'm Jonathan Friedland, and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.